0: on the processed versus unprocessed side. Try to be on the unprocessed side. And once again, this is a spectrum. I mean, to a certain degree, everything is processed. You cooking your steak is processed. You cutting up an apple is technically processed. So ultimately, it's kind of figuring out, hey, for each individual ingredient, what is kind of the ideal state? And then, you know, how do we, how do we get close to to that, to that perspective?
1: Welcome to the HVMN podcast, your resource for evidence-based nutritional strategies, cognitive performance, and fitness science. Thank you for joining us meal replacements. It's an arm of the food industry that has exploded in the last few years. As more and more of us are on the go or trying to maximize office productivity, quick and easy nutrition has climbed higher in demand. The problem is most of these products are not exactly what we would call healthy. This week, our guest is Connor Young, founder and CEO of Ample. Ample aims to be that healthy meal replacement with specific products targeting ketogenic, vegetarian, or more standard diet lifestyles. Elephant in the room, Yes, it is processed food. Yes, the ingredients in Ample are probably better to eat in its whole food state. There are pros and cons to processed foods, meal replacements, etc. Connor himself preaches how we should be eating more whole foods, so it was interesting exploring how he believes his company fits in the health food industry, how and why they formulate certain ingredients like pea protein, and the state of personalized nutrition as a whole. We ask the hard questions you probably want to ask Connor yourself so get ready. If by the end of the episode you find yourself curious to try Ample, Connor was kind enough to offer our listeners 15% off your first purchase. Just use the code HVMN. Their website is www.amplemeal.com. You can also find these details in the show notes. Enjoy the episode.
2: Connor, thanks for coming on to the program. Jeff, so thankful to be here, and I appreciate you having me on. So we probably met now Three, four years ago now at a WeWork in San Francisco when we we're both just starting off on our companies. So HVMN was known as NutriBox at the time. And I think we were a little bit ahead of you at the time. Maybe we had three, four employees and this young dynamic man, Connor Young, came into the WeWork and was very fit, talking about changing nutrition. Fast forward three, four years and now that company is ample. So very cool to see this journey.
0: Yeah, it's been fun also to see how we both have evolved throughout that time, but also how the entire industry has evolved throughout that time. It's been like really fascinating to see.
2: Maybe we we should start with painting the landscape of what nutrition, what health and wellness sort of seemed like as an industry and as a community three, four years ago.
0: Sure. I'm 30 years old right now. I graduated from college probably around eight years ago. And I started a CrossFit gym that was in Nashville, Tennessee. And then kind of was like, oh, well, this is really cool and exciting, but also it's not scalable. I wanted to see how could you scale that. But I also wanted to see what the deal was with the medical industry, because where we are from a health perspective, I thought was one of the biggest challenges of our generation. Like, how do we get people healthier. So that's kind of what I set out to just be in the business of health. Sold medical devices for a couple of years for Johnson & Johnson, but I kind of realized that it was very reactive. We weren't really from an industry. We weren't really trying to solve people's problems. We were trying to You're sell them expensive symptoms. band-aids. Yeah. So came out to San Francisco and started a physical therapy patient engagement platform. And so that was around the time when actually another competitor came out. And as I was starting this other company, I kind of realized most of my friends had this issue with Eating healthily. And they were like, You can tell me how to eat. And that's fine. But I actually don't have the time to actually be able to do that on a routine basis. Although it's knowing what to do is important, really being able to have the tools, that's probably just as important. So they were like, Hey, can you make something for me? Can you basically make a really quick meal, but that's also healthy? And that's when I was like, All right, fine, I'll give it a try. And so it was kind of this concept of ample was effectively thrust upon me from my friends, which is actually in hindsight a fantastic way to start a business when the demand was all inherent. But But where I was kind of coming from, and the reason why I was not happy with the the industry at the time was because it felt like the vast majority of the food industry, especially the health food industry, was not actually health food. It was more just health marketing. It was starting first from a marketing perspective saying, hey, here's what we're currently able to do with our cost structure of having to get X or Y margins. And how do we kind of do the minimum viable change to our product such that we can market it? And so I said, well, that's kind of backwards. It feels like, you know, yes, that would have worked maybe. 15 years ago. But now we're in an age where people really do care about what they're eating. With effectively nutrition influencers being the way they are and being so powerful, you actually have a large audience of people who really does know the details. Yeah, and I
2: think the science is also accelerating. Exactly. Right. I think the epidemiological data, the biochemical physiology data is really just showing that some of the assumptions that we had 15, 20, 30 years ago when we were creating the food pyramid 50, 100 years ago, that stuff is outdated. So I agree with you. I think there's just a big push. I'm just thinking when you're saying that health marketing versus actual healthy food, it just reminds me of Gatorade. Their big innovation was organic Gatorade, so it's like okay, you have sugar in your Gatorade product, and now you're gonna put organic sugar in there. Yeah. And what is the difference between organic glucose and not organic glucose? It's
0: still the same. Exactly. Molecule. Exactly. And then you're gonna come up with a really cool, innovative word for salt. Right. You're gonna call it electrolytes. Right. It's like fantastic. <laughs> I could get my big old Morton's thing of salt, and it'll cost me three dollars. That's like one one thousandth of the price of a Gatorade. So. Yeah. The market and the industry, in terms of consumer education, as well as the knowledge, were both ready for us to create this. And what I soon found was that the food science was not far behind. It still needed some work, and which is what both of our companies have worked on. Neither of our companies could have existed five years ago, I think, with the actual food technology the way it is.
2: You're absolutely right. I mean, you couldn't make a ketone ester at the current price without some of the recent developments in terms of how do you synthesize something chirally pure in a very pure way. So curious if for broader food industry, what do you think are some of those catalysts?
0: Well, first of all, in our specific case, the big innovation that has needed to happen the ability to powderize fats with less sugar or carbohydrates attached to them. For those who are not educated on how the food production of fats happen, which is probably 99% of people, rightfully so, it's that fat in general is liquid at room temperature. The way that you actually get it into a powder is they effectively atomize it and kind of spray it onto a carbohydrate. So imagine a perfume bottle, that would be an atomizer.
2: Right.
0: So this perfume bottle is kind of what they spray really teeny micro droplets onto a field of carbohydrates, and then they allow the two of those to kind of combine, just physically, not chemically. And then they drop to the bottom and that's effectively your powder. The problem is, until only a few years ago, the industry standard was to do that on corn maltodextrin, which is a relatively cheap corn oil and it's a corn carbohydrate. And it inherently means that for every one gram of fat, you have one gram of carbohydrates. So if you're trying to create something that's like keto, for instance, it's inherently impossible. So what we've done is worked with our contract manufacturer as well as our suppliers. And our food science team has worked with their food science teams to make, I guess you could say, a powder that either has less carbohydrates attached to it, has a different substrate, is either fiber- which is effectively zero net carbs, or protein, which is completely different altogether. So it's that type of innovation that has happened that's really allowed us to have effectively a meal in a bottle that's had low carbs. And specifically, it means that the carbs that are in Ample are exclusively the carbs that we want to be in Ample. And not just the quote-unquote filler that people talk about being in many products. From our perspective, I think the biggest thing that has happened.
2: That's something that we've been thinking a lot about as well in terms of the carriers for fat. And it's just, okay, you've saturated fats, which are very, are basically solid. That's like lard. Yeah. You have unsaturated fats, which are oils. And yeah, how do you carry that? You're not going to necessarily want to put oil (laughs) into these ample bottles necessarily. (laughs) How do you carry that? And if you can put it on a substrate that's like low glycemic index, like a fiber. Yeah. It's like a very smart solution.
0: You had asked a separate question as well. You said like, what has happened in the industry that has kind of gotten us to this point? And I'd love to touch base on that. Yeah, let's talk about that. So I'm assuming that anyone listening to your podcast is in their own way, an influencer. They have either their own followings, or frankly, they're just the excited person in their own personal friend group who knows all this stuff about nutrition. Yeah, not the flat our listeners.
2: I think that's actually true. It says like people that are listening to our podcast, which is sizable, but it's not like a Joe Rogan, everyone yeah. listening to it. You gotta be the top decile percentage person in your friend group that's like interested in health, performance, metabolism, nutrition.
0: Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And so what's interesting is that 20 years ago, All of the information that we got about nutrition and health was basically top down. It was either from the doctor, from the American Medical Association or American Diabetes Association, or, you know, from our doctors, who's effectively getting it from the same source, or it's from the government in terms of school, from a food pyramid, otherwise advertising from like big food or like cereal companies, which is basically telling you the only thing that you want and that you're hearing. But of course, now with the internet, that's not the case anymore. You can have someone like yourself, Mark Sisson or Dave Asprey or Rob Wolfer talk about nutrition in a way that's relatively unbiased, in a way that kind of is more of a bottom-up approach. And I think that the big thing that's happening right now is the food industry is really interesting because as opposed to any other CPG business, there's, on a yearly basis, something like 17% of the market share from large food companies is getting snapped up by small food companies. Mm -hmm. And the small food companies like ourselves are actually taking this market share because we're actually listening to the influencers and to the community. And so because these are the people who are now, they have more power than ever. So I think that this is not only exciting for us because we're kind of, as Wayne Gretzky would say, we're skating to where the puck is going. But it's also really exciting because it means that people like listeners have a lot more power and influence over where the food companies are going, I would really not underestimate your own power if you're listening to this because like the Campbell's, the Kellogg's, the Pepsi's of the world, 100% are listening and they have to change. And if they don't, they're going to die. Yeah.
2: You look at Kraft Heinz that are stock just tanked recently because of essentially speaking towards that same macro trend. Customers are shying away, moving away from these processed foods that are giving you diabetes, metabolic syndrome, all this stuff and looking at products, foods that are better for, them. Yeah. So, what do you think are the pillars of traditional CPGs doing wrong and what companies like yours, influencers, or what scientists are really gravitating towards? I mean, I think on our podcast, we've talked a lot about low carb, reducing refined carbohydrate intake, mm-hmm. potentially looking at time restricted feeding, fasting as strategies, looking at different forms of fat, maybe avoiding polyunsaturated fatty acids versus for monounsaturated or other forms of fat. Curious to hear from your perspective, what do you think are some of these big changes or big trends that you're focused on as you look at evolving and creating better foods?
0: I mean, you touched on basically most of the things that I think about. I think about it kind of from like a mechanistic perspective first. I say, what are a few of the things that really drive human biology? We think gut microbiome, Hmm inflammation, and hormone response, so glycemic or insulin response. And effectively, if you can kind of start from that bottoms-up approach that you know from a fundamental biology or biological perspective, those are things that, although there's still being science that's done, we can be pretty confident that those mechanisms are going to effectively drive the health of an organism, of human beings. Then we say, okay, well, what helps out gut microbiome? What helps out reducing inflammation? And honestly, I think that until we address those things that you've just mentioned, we don't even really need to look all that much further. So lowering our refined carbohydrates, I would say a couple things. One, and I'm actually less confident on this point, but I just want to say that as a caveat. What's interesting to me is to see the digestion of carbohydrates and fat together versus carbohydrates or fat on its own. Because it seems like from some of the data that I've seen is that having carbohydrates is not necessarily bad. It's just that our bodies aren't very well adapted at actually metabolizing them at the same time as they metabolize fat. You think about when would you ever actually have fat and carbohydrates in the same food in nature? And most of those, they don't really exist in the same form. And so I think, okay, well, not necessarily demonizing carbs entirely, but to say, hey, if we're going to have fat in it, let's not have carbohydrates. Now, I will say, of course, that it's probably the case that having a lower carbohydrate diet in general is going to be better for us, specifically because we kind of have seen having the opposite has done to us in the form of diabetes and metabolic health and everything like that. No,
2: I think oftentimes in the low carb community, you can go, like zero carb maximalists, right? Yeah, like, exactly. don't avoid carbs at all specific costs. And yeah. I think the rational, sensible evidence driven person will say, look, carbohydrates have their role. Yeah. If you're looking to do a specific sport application or mm-hmm. specific application, you're trying to win a 100 meter race or lift a lot of weights. You yeah. probably will want some sugar in your system yeah. for maximal performance. But I think most scientists, people that are sensible, would agree just pounding a bunch of sugar. <laughs>
0: Of course. Probably not. probably
2: not optimal. And I think that's an interesting observation around the uniqueness of the standard Western diet, where it is high carb and high fat at the yeah. same time, which is like almost uniquely engineered to destroy your metabolism.
0: There is this interesting... I think I forget who it was. I think it was the Lancet who a few months ago came out with this large claim that said effectively like low carbohydrate diets are killing us Mm. to a certain, that was effectively their claim. And what was interesting, I was talking to Rob Wolf about this and we were chatting about the fact they kind of extrapolated. They created this U-shaped curve that said best life expectancy is in a moderate range, but they extrapolated a curve beyond the data. So in fact, they actually had no studies that actually talked about specifically a ketogenic diet, which is really interesting. They had basically like the lowest carbohydrate diet that they included onto the study was something like 30% of your calories. (laughs) So it's like, how do you actually make that claim if you're not even studying it? They were sort of just extrapolating it, which is a bummer. I think also coming back to the individuality of people is really important as well. So for instance, like one of the key tenets of Ample was Hey, I truly believe that it's likely the case that low carbohydrates in general are probably better for most people. But should you be exclusively keto? Do you need to be? I don't know. For instance, I can actually still maintain a state of ketosis while having something like 75 grams of carbs a day. And this is heavy workout or are you just ambiently just... Probably with the working out. But even on days that I don't work out, it still tends to be the case. Okay, cool. I guess I'm just lucky like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There it, it is definitely variation. You, I think that's one of the main reasons why people
2: want to build muscle. You have better glucose yeah. sinks. Yeah. Right? So if you take sugar, it gets sucked into your muscles.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, to get back to your question... To reiterate your points on what are the food industry things that what's wrong with how most food companies are doing it, I would say, yes, not actually making a commitment to lower sugar. I think the jury's still out about sugar alcohols. Personally, we don't use it in Ample just because some people had some digestive distress. I think it's probably fine, but, but ultimately we don't really want to risk it. And frankly, we can have a good taste without it. So why put it in there? Cool. And then, you know, to have, I would say, a spectrum of on the processed versus unprocessed side, try to be on the unprocessed side. And once again, this is a spectrum to a certain degree, everything is processed. You cooking your steak is processed. You cutting up an apple is technically processed. So ultimately, it's kind of figuring out, hey, for each individual ingredient, what is the ideal state? And then how do we get close to that perspective? So I think that's the second point. And then I think the third, like you had mentioned, is there's a decent amount of evidence on the negative effects of polyunsaturated omega-6s. So if we can get away from those, then we can have a really great starting point.
2: So those are like the three main tenets as you're looking at formula food
0: yes I think in general obviously ample has a specific use case and so we're like hey how do we make an entire meal out of this yeah. we have to have fiber as well we also have to have a sufficient amount of protein carbs can vary but we also want to have a sufficient amount of fat and then finally to kind of nourish the gut microbiome as we have mentioned with the fiber comes prebiotics but we also want to have a probiotic content as well cool and so that's kind of where where those combination the combination of those specific ingredients yeah come let's dive
2: right. into the macros and the the gut microbiome. I think that's yeah. interesting. But before doing that, I think it might be remiss not to ask a hard question, but I think you mentioned the spectrum of processed, to unprocessed. Yeah. Obviously, this is somewhat processed. Sure. Right? You don't see these growing no, you you know, don't. in the field or they're running around. So what is your philosophy on there's some convenience factor, obviously, here? How yeah. do you think about it? You know, I think that is one of the critiques with the processed food industry. And I think that's something, obviously, you have to answer questions about at HVMN as well. So here's a here perspective. Obviously, there are some processes and I think you make a good argument that almost every single food that we all consume is processed at some yeah. level. I think you have some folks arguing, okay, let's only go towards food in the most natural form as possible. How do we reconcile that notion?
0: I think on one side of the spectrum, processed looks like a gummy bear. What's kind of ironic is ours is a meal replacement. It's a powder in a bottle. You put water in it, you shake it up and drink. And so some people look at that and they're like, oh, well, this isn't food. But then they look at a chip and say, well, that is food, which is really interesting because that's effectively more processed because they effectively start with the same powder that we do. And then they do more processing To actually get it into a chip format or a pretzel format format or a cereal format or whatever. Having it be the reconstitution and back into a salad phase, I think that's one level beyond where we really want to go. I would say that for us, what we've tried to do from the perspective of our oils, we stay towards non-GMO. And the reason why is not because I think that GMOs are bad. I think that there's a big case for GMOs saving the future. However, I do think, though, that the vast majority of the reasons why GMOs right now are being used... Is not to actually feed more people, but it's effectively as an excuse to just douse them with more pesticide. Right. It's a yield economic question more than a health necessarily. Exactly. That's a big thing to bog down in that specific question. But we're saying, okay, you know, until more evidence comes out, definitely totally fine for you. And also, frankly, I don't want to support a company like Monsanto or something like that, you know, at this moment. That's one of the big things for us. I think another thing for us, the oils that we use, we try to stick towards cold press or effectively things that have a less of a heating or denaturation standpoint. Same with our proteins. So grass-fed collagen, grass-fed whey, we tend to, and making sure that it's relatively undenatured. That's an important part for us. But I will say as well, like there are times when processing is important. So for instance, we have pea protein. Many people are like, well, Connor, like peas have lectins. It's true. Peas do have lectins when they are unprocessed. And what is the meaning of lectins, why they're bad or why people have some concern of them? Okay, there's good lectins and there's bad lectins, but effectively a lectin is a part carbohydrate, part protein. And effectively what they can do is they can latch on to the enterocytes, which is the lining of your guts, and they can pull off or rip off these enterocytes and do damage to them. In a similar way that some people worry about gluten, so lectins can be harmful for people because They'll do damage to the enterocytes and potentially cause or be related to some autoimmunity issues. Those specific lectins, they're not all lectins. Our bodies make lectins mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So they're not across the board bad. But people think, okay, so lectins are in peas and a lot of legumes. What we've done as a society or at 10,000 years of agriculture, what we've done is have been soaking lec- beans In water. So, yeah, you soak them and, yeah. then you, and then you heat them up. It would actually be almost deadly to have red kidney beans raw. The amount of lectins is toxic to the human body. I remember that as a kid,
2: right? Like, don't chew these beans. Yeah. That is funny. I never thought about it. I mean, it your from grandma
0: a, probably didn't know about the lectins
2: or yeah, whatever. I didn't think but, from a biochemical level. But yeah, I mean, I think it just remember it's like, these beans are like rocks.
0: Yeah. Can't mean, eat them they raw. do taste terrible yeah. and you can't really digest them. So I think that's one of the things where you have to kind of realize, which is some processing is undesirable. Some processing is literally necessary or you'll die. We obviously invented fire a long time ago and we process food by cooking it. So I think it's a fine balance and I hope that we're doing it well. But once again, like if someone has an issue with how we're doing it, I would be happy to have that dialogue because once again, we can always improve. Like yeah. we'll, we will always improve. Yeah. And- I think process and unprocess is maybe...
2: The wrong dimension to really look at it. It's maybe orthogonal to what exactly is being input into the system and mm-hmm. how it affects your metabolism, or how does yeah. it affect your physiology, right? Because I yeah. think if you have things that are processed, but these are reasonable things that are good substrates for your body, then yeah. it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's like something a chemical or something that comes from a living organism is that inherently better than the other? No, they're just everything's just like a molecule floating yeah. around. I think the problem is when you have processed and there have adulterants or rancification or oxidation, that's where the process is really bad. Yes, right. You have a trans fat, which is like a fat that does not exist in nature. And that is a processed thing that makes it more sustainable to be shelf-stable. That is bad. But if it's smartly processed where it's actually very, very clean for your body to burn, yeah, That's reasonable. So I think maybe one way to change a dialogue is not get overly focused on the process, the unprocessed, but actually think about it from a fueling perspective of how your body processes it, yeah. like how it actually breaks
0: it down. I agree. And I think that there's a book called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Yeah. And I think it's a fantastic way to think about it. In his book, what he talks about is it's not necessarily that the unnatural things are inherently bad. It's simply that they need to be validated first. They need a longer period of time to prove themselves. We know for instance that we've been eating Brussels sprouts for a really long period of time. That seems like a relatively validated way that okay, if you eat Brussels sprouts you're probably going to be okay. But if you were to kind of like take all the molecules and kind of reconstitute it into a Brussels sprout imitation, it's plausible that it could be fine. In fact, it could be better. But it just needs more validation. Right. So I think that's where we kind of need to get to.
2: Yeah. I would concede that likely that something that's more natural has a higher probability of being more easily digestible, for example. sure, But that doesn't constrain out everything that's processed is like just bad for you. Yeah, I think that's yeah. overly strict. So one thing that I think might be helpful to look at specific in the meal replacement industry, people have drank insurers of the world for 20, 30 years. You know, in Silicon Valley, Soylent has been a bit of a phenomenon. I'm sure you know some of the people there, but I, I'm you know friends with Rob Reinhardt, the founder there. What do you think that they don't have rights? Or how are you thinking about it differently from Ample that changes the meal replacement game?
0: I don't want to come and bash any of our competitors here. (laughs) Like, to a certain degree, everyone's doing something right. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in business in the first place. Where Ample, I feel, where we want to really kind of shine is, as we talked about with this naturalness of the ingredients, we want to be a little bit more towards the naturalness side of things in terms of if we're going to have an animal product, have it be grass-fed. If we're going to have plant products, let it be non-GMO. And if we're going to get vitamins, let's primarily get those from the actual foods themselves rather than the synthetic vitamins and minerals. And I think what's important for us as well is like we have goals and intentions for the product. So, for instance, we have a ketogenic version. And so our 400-calorie version has just three net grams of carbs per every 400 calories with no sugar alcohols. And so that is intended for a specific use case. It's, hey, I'm trying to eat a low-carbohydrate diet, and so you know, how do I do that with high-quality ingredients— and really, really quick time, like I I only have 30 seconds or a minute to actually prepare or consume this thing. And I need to also constrain my carbohydrates. So that's kind of where we thrive. I think that we're going after people who really do know that their health is very important to them. They're willing to kind of pay a little bit more because our product is more expensive than Soylent. It is more expensive than Insure. I don't think it'll ever get as expensive as those products, but we're really confident in the quality of our ingredients, as well as the targeted macronutrient ratios that we're going for, Mm -hmm. as well as the additional probiotic, you know, nature that helps for the gut microbiome as well. And so I think that's where we're trying to kind of set ourselves apart.
2: Yeah, cool. So let's talk about the macros. So I think we probably unpacked a good amount about fat. One thing that I think we just touched upon, maybe to wrap up the idea on fat is that you use a high oleic oil. Yeah, And can you help unpack that for the audience?
0: So oleic acid is a monounsaturated fatty acid. Its name is actually derived, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg here, but it's the most predominant one in olive oil. So the names are kind mm. of coming from the same root there. So generally considered a very healthy monounsaturated fat. And so traditionally what has happened is the sunflower seed has been relatively low oleic. It's been way higher in polyunsaturated omega-6 fatty acids. And so what has happened, though, is that there's a couple of suppliers out there who actually want to be able to provide a higher oleic option, And so rather than using GMO modification, what they've done is actually just done selective breeding over time in the same way that effectively all breeds of dogs are different through selective breeding. And so they've selectively bred higher and higher amounts of oleic acid uh, to the point where it's actually now higher oleic than olive oil and also macadamia nut oil. And in terms of, I don't want to quote the exact number, but it's a very small amount of polyunsaturated omega-6, by definition, over 85% oleic acid, which is exciting for us because it means that by still kind of having it effectively be this natural form in the sense that it's just selective breeding, we're able to have that same macronutrient profile that we're looking for without having the sort of detrimental inflammatory responses that omega-6s generally have.
2: So basically you found a natural way that has selected like eat dog bread, your way to high oleic content oil, which is interesting. That's very cool. So we talked a lot about fats. How about your choices in protein? You mentioned you're looking at grass-fed way. Yeah. Maybe help unpack for the audience here. What were some of the considerations that people should think about in general around their protein sources? Any specific idea around grass-fed? Is that more marketing speak? Is there some actual benefit from the grass-fed component? What are your thoughts there on the amino acid protein side of the world?
0: One thing that we think about related to protein decisions are what's called a pd score. Are you familiar with that term? Well, let's explain to the audience. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, PDCAS is protein derived amino acid composition or something like that, or score. So, effectively, what it is is it's a number from one to 100 of how complete a protein is. Mm-hmm. And so, something with 100, like whey protein or eggs, or, or actually, soy is, has a score of 100 in the sense that they're not deficient in any of the nine es- essential amino acids. Mm. We have exactly nine essential amino acids, somewhere in the order of 22, 23 or so amino acids that generally are found in foods. So we don't necessarily need them, but they are beneficial.
2: Right, and the basically the distinction is that essentials are things that you must consume exogenously who are non-essentials your body can produce endogenously. Exactly.
0: You have to have them because your body can't create them. And by the way, there are essential amino acids, fats or fatty acids. There are no essential carbohydrates, which is usually one of the arguments why people are like, you just have to go keto. I think it's (laughs) a little bit specious of an argument, but I get the point. Yeah. So regardless, on the amino acid profile side of things, what we try to do is to say, so grass-fed whey has a very high PDCAS score, very high in branched-chain amino acids as well, especially if people are trying to work out and have that fast recovery. That's the primary protein in our Ample Original and also our Ample K. In Ample Original, we also have grass-fed collagen, which is well-known to be very helpful for bone and joint health Mm -hmm. and skin health as well. The last protein that we have in Ample Original is P-protein. And so why pea protein? One is that it does not have lectins. And the second thing is that, as I was talking about before, how do we get a product that has relatively low carbohydrates but still has the fat? Well, we've actually been able to do is have our fat sprayed on that pea protein, Mm. which allows us to kind of get our net carbs down, which is really, really interesting.
2: Uh, So the pea protein is almost like a carrier for fat, so you get like double bang. Exactly. Okay.
0: So that's product one. We also have egg white protein as well in our ample K, which also has a PDCAS score of one. And then the problem though is that some people have issues with protein in general, are either vegan or vegetarian, or like myself, they actually have a little bit of trouble. Either with the casein or the lactose in grass fed whey. And so that's why we have Ample V, which is our plant based version, which effectively combines the amino acids of a pea protein as well as rice protein to have a combined PCAS of one. So individually, they're incomplete, but when you combine them together, the deficiencies in one make up for the deficiencies in the other. So that's kind of how we're able to kind of have this complete protein in Ample V, which is pretty exciting.
2: Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying this episode thus far, please consider writing a review on our iTunes page. It really does help increase the visibility of our podcast. That's really the best way to support our work. In appreciation for your review, we'll hook you up with $15 of HVMN store credit. We also love it when we see you guys share our episodes that you've enjoyed on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And we often reshare those posts. Just tag us at our handle, at HVMN. Now, back to the show. So I want to follow up and make sure we cover the grass-fed component is that typically people talk about the grass-fed component versus the grain-fed more from a fatty acid ratio. Curious from a protein selection, was that a consideration or is it more of a quality issue where typically grass-fed cows are probably raised in a more high-quality environment. I'm curious to get your thoughts around that. One, and then two, I want to add a
0: second question related to some of the concerns around soy protein, which could be interesting. Totally. So a couple of things. I totally agree that the vast majority of the issues around grass-fed are around the amino acid composition. I would also say that it's not just the composition, but it's very well documented that the quality of a grain-fed animal's life is just pretty darn bad. And effectively, if you have a lot of toxic stuff that you're ingesting, your body has to store it in fat if it's fat soluble. I mean, if it's water soluble, your body can just kind of pee it out. But if it's fat soluble, it has to store it in fat. And so that's why I don't really trust the grain fed fat because there's a very high likelihood that there's a lot of crap in there Mm -hmm. that I don't really want to. Do you try to avoid grain fed cows versus grass fed cows
2: in terms of steaks? You try to carry
0: that into... So if I'm actually eating out, yeah, and I know it's grain-fed, I'll probably have the leaner cut rather than the fattier cut. Fair enough, okay. Yeah. And honestly, there's a bajillion other ways I can get my fat, so I'm not really worried about that side of things. Yeah, I would say that that's one consideration. But I, the quality of the protein, the fact is I simply don't know. As I had mentioned before about the kind of processing where I'm saying that the Nassim Nicholas Taleb argument that unnatural might require longer to be validated... I just don't yet know what really are the negative ramifications of a grain-fed animal. We know that they just die much quicker than grass-fed. We know that there's toxic stuff in the fat. For me, although there hasn't, to the best of my knowledge, ever been proven that there's anything bad with the protein, I'd rather just kind of stay on the safe side. So I can't say anything. It could just be marketing. It could just be me staying on the safe side. But I would say for that reason, as well as pure animal ethic and kind of welfare, I simply want to put my dollars as a food company, into the thing that I think is going to be more sustainable for the long term. Yeah, fair enough. I think
2: that's very reasonable. One of the critiques or popular topics of conversation in food consumption is soy, soybeans, and potential estrogenic precursors of consuming too much soy. So I think one of the things that I think that seemed pretty apparent is that you have meal replacement type products like a Soylent or an Insure, a lot higher ratios or they highlight soy oil yeah. Uh, yeah. predominantly. Curious get your thoughts around that. So my understanding of the literature is that there is some small but not insignificant increases in estrogen production as you uptake mm-hmm. and ramp up increases in soy. Yeah. Was that one of the main considerations of why you avoided soy in your products? Any other considerations? I mean, I think on the other hand, soy is a fairly complete, protein, as you mentioned. So that's kind of the trade-off for soy, tofu. I mean, I think if you are a vegetarian or a vegan, it's a source of protein. And I think a lot of the vegan restaurants, you have a lot of tofu chickens, tofu turkeys. It can be very yummy. Uh, Should we be concerned about the
0: estrogenic properties? What was your consideration there when you avoided soy? Yeah, a couple of reasons. One is I've read Very similar research, which is effectively like there's a relatively mild impact in terms of estrogen. But once again, we're just, you know, in this sense going to be on the better safe than sorry type of idea. So if it does have a potential negative impact, I'd rather not wait five or 10 or 15 years until the data comes out and says, hey, it actually did have a negative impact. And oh, by the way, all your customers are worse off because of it. I never really want to have that be in hindsight where we were. So I think that for number one. Number two, though, is 99% of soy is GMO. And so it's very difficult to get actually non-GMO soy. That's okay. So uh, (laughs) in fact, the funny thing is I've always kind of thought this is silly. And once again, not against GMO inherently. I just want it to be studied really well. What I was a little bit disappointed with is in 1997, we started introducing GMOs into the agriculture system in the U.S. And now it's around 99%. But that was more than 20 years ago. And I could be off by about a year or two, but it was something like 2015 when we finally decoded the actual genetics of soy, which is really interesting that like you'd put it out and make it completely ubiquitous in a food supply 20 years before you'd actually understand what its genes are. So I'm happy for innovation. I just want to go a little bit slower when it comes to our own bodies and also considering that we can't take back these decisions. Once it's out in the food supply, it's out for good. The agriculture system in the U.S. has now changed for good And there's nothing we can kind of do about it. So that's kind of why I'm a little bit more on on that side of things, because there's no undo button. So I think those are the real two ingredients that made up that decision. Of course, we did have to contend with the fact that, as you had mentioned, it's complete. It also tastes pretty good. And from a food science perspective, it's really easy to work with. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really cheap. And the last aspect of it is kind of from a fundamental perspective perspective, I don't believe that corn, soy, and wheat should have government subsidies. Mm. And I think that that's actually one of the biggest reasons why consumers now are unhealthy is because for the last however many decades, we've been subsidizing these huge commodity crops, beets as well, and sugarcane. And so because of that, it's artificially lowering the price of these things, increasing the supply and basically making it so easy for large food companies to come around and have really high margins on food products that are unhealthy. And so I don't want to put more dollars into a commodity crop. I don't think that's either right from a kind of moral perspective, and I don't think it's healthy for us in the long run. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think it's a good argument for why subsidies have a lot of second order effects that are unpredictable, right? It's like, okay, you're subsidizing corn. Which might be good for the Iwan farmers who are farming corn, but then you think of high fructose corn syrup and how that's everywhere in our food supply now because you have so much corn. Okay, well, this is going to be cheaper than any other source of sugar. Okay. I don't think any of the policy decision makers there were like, all right, let's like make this high fructose corn syrup and pump it everywhere. No one knew. It's just hard to predict. Yeah, no one knew. And also
0: no one I would very much believe that there's no evil players in this food industry. I think one thing that's kind of unfortunate is that we kind of get this fear-mongering, but we also get kind of righteous sort of anger towards either large food companies, government, or the medical system. I understand how it might kind of be perceived like that. No one's ill-intentioned in this. Like, zero people. I've never talked to any of the executives at Pepsi or Kellogg or whatever who just think to themselves, yeah, I really want to make people unhealthy. Yeah, I agree we've created a system that we didn't understand. Now we're living with the consequences. And fortunately or unfortunately, the system exists now and it perpetuates itself. Pepsi, to not go out of business, still has to sell Pepsi soft drinks. So it's actively trying to move away, but takes time. So I think it's really important to kind of understand what's wrong, but not put too much blame or unnecessary hate on individuals for this.
2: I think that's fair. I think you don't necessarily need to overly demonize, but it is important to raise your voices and try to vote with your dollars, per se, into buying and supporting businesses or products that you believe in. So on one hand, let's not create a lynch mob necessarily, (laughs) but it is important to choose to support vocally and through dollars to to, to make sure you help the companies that you believe in. Yeah. And then, so we covered fat, we covered protein. Let's talk about carbohydrates. So we talked about a keto version of Ample, which has lower carbs, but you have the original version, and a vegetarian or vegan version?
0: Yeah, it's vegan both version, vegan and vegetarian, yeah.
2: Which I presume have carb content. So what are your considerations there? Let's talk about the trade-offs between different forms of carbohydrates. Sure.
0: All of them actually have a relatively low amount of carbohydrates. So, and I usually quote the 400 calorie meals. That's more common than the 600 calorie meals Mm -hmm. in terms of purchasing, but there's around 11 or 12 net grams of carbs per calorie for the Ample Original and also Ample V, our plant-based one. There's three net grams for the Ample K. Well, we actually changed. We were able to kind of phase out our tapioca. So tapioca dextrin is one of those things that, in my mind, is better than corn maltodextrin. As a carrier of fat. we had uh, tapioca dextrin originally. But now that we've been able to kind of improve our processing and our process for actually making these fats, we've been taken off the label, which is fantastic. The thing that we've replaced it with is some oat flour. And so the whole grain oats we felt were relatively low glycemic, but still provide relatively good carbohydrates and are pretty clean. They're gluten free as well. And then one thing that we also have is we have sweet potato. So... We have sweet potato in Ample, well, actually in both Ample V and Ample Original. And so those are quite prevalent in like a decent amount of B vitamins and A vitamins as well. So they kind of add a little bit of a flavor to it, which is kind of fun. You probably can't pick it out, but it definitely adds to the flavor.
2: Got it. So you're looking at lower glycemic carbohydrate sources. Sweet potato is known to be a little bit more starchy or a little bit more Mm -hmm. complex and a simple... tapioca syrup or something correct exactly okay got it cool that seems very reasonable and then the last component which i think is interesting is the gut microbiome and obviously Ah. that's been i would say in conjunction with keto fasting probably a third fourth biggest macro trend of interest in the community of nutrition. And it sounds like you've been thoughtful about the prebiotic, probiotic components of that. So can we talk about some of the considerations in Ample that you thought about as you're making it?
0: Yeah. So I started a CrossFit gym eight years ago or so. And during our level one training program Their analogy for us for exercise is the black box. And they were like, metabolism is freaking complex. We really don't know exactly what the hell goes on in the human body to make this thing work. What we do know is that we have an input, which is the stress that we put on our body during the workout. We have a black box. It goes into the black box. And then we have the output, which is we get stronger. We get faster. We get more resilient our immune system gets better, we get more healthier, all of these above, right? Sure. And so effectively, I think right now it seems as if there's a black box in the gut microbiome space, which is to say that we're relatively confident is that greater diversity of a gut microbiome is generally beneficial. The amount of species that you have is probably a good thing. However, what I think is generally happening with the probiotic space is that we're relatively ignorant of the mechanisms of how they work, but simply that they work. So the kind of current thinking that I'm aware of, and someone of course can correct me if I'm wrong, but is that effectively probiotics are a transient species and they're effectively like a flagship species. So the best analogy that we have for this is, well, let's say the savanna. you have a lion. There's actually a relatively few amount of lions in the savanna. For a given population of zebras, giraffes, and everything else, yeah plants, wildlife, whatever. But a single pride of lion can make a massive difference on the composition. If you didn't have those, the entire ecosystem would be totally screwed because the gazelle would just run amok. They would eat everything. Yep. And then all of a sudden there'd be desolation because there's no more food for there's no more plants. So we have a few of these flagship species environments. And so the popular thought is that although these are transient species, that once you stop using them, they go out of your system within about seven days or so. Mm -hmm. On average, they generally tend to solve for microbiome diversity and generally tend to do things like improve digestive function in the sense that how we actually metabolize our food in the sense that we potentially get more vitamins out of the food that we do consume. And then secondly, they seem to reduce symptoms of gastric distress, like IBS symptoms or flatulence or really whatever else that people are having. Right. Ultimately, I think that's kind of the working model. And that's kind of how to describe what we put into Ample. And so some of the best genuses were the lactobacillus and also the bifidobacterium genus. What we also, though, had to do is select for strains that were actually relatively resilient to acid. Because, as you know, ample is in a powder. It's not actually encapsulated into a pill, like most probiotics are. And so what you need to do is to have it resistant to heat resistant to acid because your acid in your stomach can get to something like one pH. Yeah, is it going
2: to die in the bottle? Is going to die in your stomach? You got to be thoughtful yeah, exactly. about that. Yeah.
0: So we've selected strains that are kind of inherently very tough. They're very robust and have been shown in clinical studies to be able to get down to that type of pH without being completely killed off. And the other thing that I will mention is that, yes, there will be probiotics that actually die off. One thing that we do and other manufacturers who are trying to do this ethically is effectively understate the amount of probiotics that are actually in the And bottle. overdose more. So you have like you make the claim if they die. Exactly. Right? Because we know that over the average self-life of an ample on the shelf, a certain percent of them will die. By the average time that someone consumes the bottle, here's generally where it will be. One of the last strain that's kind of interesting here is a spore-forming bacteria called Bacillus coagulans. And this has actually been pretty well studied as well in terms of having positive effects on both gut microbiome diversity as well as protein absorption and also just reducing gastric distress. The interesting thing about Bacillus coagulans is that because it's spore-forming effectively means that it's kind of got itself in a shell. It's almost like a seed pod that doesn't open until it's in the correct spot in your intestines to proliferate. So that's kind of what keeps it from dying. I think the
2: point that you note was that these are transient organisms, right? Yeah. If you are fasting for a week, your microbiome is yeah. going to look very different from before the fast. If you go on a carnivore diet, it's going to shift microbiome. If you're eating ample, you're getting another microbiome. This interesting, I think, very dynamic.
0: Sp- it can even change in a matter of a few hours after a meal. So I think because it's so dynamic, it's funny when you talk to PhDs and researchers in this gut microbiome space, almost none of them is actually willing to kind of make a claim or make a definitive statement (laughs) about stuff because they're like, oh, you know, further research is necessary. And I totally get it. There's so much that we don't know yet. But it's really exciting to see sometime in the next 10 years, I'm guessing that the amount of research and knowledge that we have is just gonna be fantastic yeah. about that space. What other things
2: have you been looking at or incorporating in your life personally? Obviously, you founded a CrossFit gym, so I'm sure physical exercise is a important part of your lifestyle. Anything else that's interesting that for folks that might be more biohackery that are listening, you know, right now I'm wearing a continuous glucose monitor, right? So I can scan my blood sugar ambiently right now.
0: Any of those fun things that you're playing around with or you keep it pretty simple? 100%. We can call them a biohack because I think that they are 100% a biohack, but I would say that they don't get put into that category. So there's a few things that I do on a daily basis that are like completely essential And they are actually three things. One is I meditate every day for an hour. I also do improv comedy once a week. I think that that's actually fantastic for just incorporating play and kind of having this open awareness and also to kind of just get completely out of your ego and out of your comfort zone. It's fantastic. The last thing is actually I only lift a couple times a week nowadays, I feel like I'm kind of able to be relatively fit even with just that because I think my body's used to kind of being in a relatively fit state. So the other days I do hip hop dance and the two of those Those improv and dance are just so fun and you can look at them from a fun perspective. And I think a lot of times people are like, oh, well, I don't do that. Over optimizing for efficiency and everything. I think the human brain is wired to play. We play as kids kind of until we, have all these stress hormones building up. But it's one of the best, I think, antidotes to a super cortisol-laden life. Not only is it fantastic for learning a new skill, reducing stress, but it's also in terms of neuroplasticity with your improv to literally be able to think on the fly and be completely present in the moment. It's just a phenomenal skill to learn. I mean, I think this is a broader conversation of something that I've been thinking a lot
2: about is that Modern life, modernity, has obviously improved longevity, overall life expectancy, except for in the last couple of years in America. Sure. But I don't know if people are happier. We have more money. Our standard of living is better than ever, right? All of us, (laughs) if we have a running toilet and you have a place to sleep, you're not homeless, which is not a given in this day and age in America, especially in San Francisco, where there's a lot of homeless people. Yeah. But- we're living the lifestyle of kings in the 1400s, right? We have running water, we have warm mm-hmm. water, It's we have light, we can read at night. But it's not clear that people are happy, and I think a lot of it is, goes back to play. I think a lot of people just are clocking in 9 to 5 and then have their same routine after work, happy yeah. hour, and it just becomes this passing of time. You're subsisting to stay alive yeah. rather than actually playing, exploring thinking of new novel things. Yeah. So I think it's like actually nice to hear that you've kind of incorporated this by learning, I guess, hip hop dance. Maybe you've been dancing for a long time. And I have not. Like I suck improv. at it. It's
0: fantastic. I'm so bad, but it's great to be bad. <laughs> I know, at it's refreshing to hear. I was really good at CrossFit, but I was like, I'm not learning enough anymore. It's not like I'm trying to learn to muscle up for the first time. And if you are, it's fantastic. It's a cool experience, but you also need to have this challenge. And for me, just kind of doing better and lifting more was not the challenge right. that I wanted. And so I was like, all right, I'll tone that back. And I, I'm still doing it, but just less of it. What's a challenge that puts me out of my comfort zone and actually kind of forces me to have courage on a daily basis? You know, I think that having that authenticity and the courage is really difficult. And I incorporate that on the improv side of things socially and then also kind of dance side of things as well. So to me, they're phenomenal. And like, I'm really excited. And I only just started both of them a few months ago and it's been fantastic. (laughs)
2: That's cool. A lot of people on our program, are world champions or Olympians or people just like focus on perfecting their craft. And I guess that might not necessarily be translatable or even practical for people like myself. I'm not going to be a gold medalist Olympian in anything, but I'm very interested in maximizing my health span, lifespan and productivity of being what I want to be world class in. So is it reasonable then for folks that want to use exercise or their hobbies as a way to empower their primary craft? Should one be more explorative in terms of pushing their comfort zones? Yeah. Get a learning component into your extracurriculars, if yeah, you Yeah,
0: exactly. And you could be a world-class Olympian CEO. That's one of those things where that's probably your main focus. And so how do you have your other aspects of your life serve that? Right. One thing I love about improv is that it doesn't really take any additional practice. The doing and the practice and the product are the exact same thing. Yeah. Same thing with dance. You just do it. And that is your practice. And it's also what's fun. Whereas what I found is like, I could never really get into guitar because although I loved it, the practice was not the same as the product. My practice was doing scales over and over, which is monotonous as hell and just not exciting to me. Hmm. So that to me is like, I wanted to kind of solve for something that unless I'm doing it in that moment, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to over-optimize. I don't have to plan. I'm just there, Yeah. which allows me to kind of be a lot more present.
2: Yeah, and I think that's like actors will reflect on. I think it's like you're present in the moment. I think when you're yeah. improv you're probably thinking about the scene, what yeah. you know, clever line you're going to say next. You're, you're in the moment. You're not, not thinking, even about- thinking
0: that. You're literally like whatever the hell comes up is what comes up. And it's funny because you actively try to not even think ten seconds ahead or not even think ten seconds behind, which yeah. is so hard to do. Yeah. Because we're so programmed to be on a time scale. But the funny thing is, you know, whenever we're actually in the zone, we're never thinking on a time scale. We're only ever in the present moment. Yeah. Which also, I think, goes back to meditation, mindfulness. Obviously,
2: when a lot of people think about meditation, they think about how do you be present? How do you be in the
0: moment? Yeah. An hour a day. When you wake up. So I'd love to talk about this. Yeah. Honestly, man, this is my passion these days. (laughs) I would say more so my passion than even ample is kind of figure out how the hell my brain works, which is so fascinating. I've done a lot of meditation. First of all, I did this thing called the finders course, which is a fantastic thing. Guy named Jeffrey Martin. He basically interviewed about a thousand enlightened people. You just knew they were enlightened. Either they were Christian, they were Zen, they were Buddhist, doesn't matter. They were just regular people but then he figured out how they got there. And so it turns out there's like 16 or 15 different types of meditation that kind of got them to that point. Mm. It doesn't really matter if you're actually looking to be enlightened or whatever or whatever the hell that means, but just to have more presence, to have less stress, to be more happy, to be more loving and patient and all that stuff. So, I did this, it was fantastic. It cost about $2,000 and it was about two and a half years ago, it was best $2,000 I ever spent. So you'd meditate an hour a day and you do a different meditation every week. Hmm. So by the end of the 16-week period, you kind of have a sense for what are the meditations that work for you. Mm So there's transcendental meditation, there's focusing on your breath, all these things. One of the things though, that you think about is they're all effectively awareness meditations. And what that means is like the end goal is that you're devoid of thought, completely in the present. If you're to close your eyes, you're only seeing like a black screen on the other side of your eyelids and there's nothing going on. And that's when crazy stuff happens or nothing happens. And it doesn't really matter, but that's effectively the goal. And that's kind of one form of meditation. We also think about meditation from the perspective of visualization, you know, there's a lot of people who kind of part of their meditation exists as visualizing the future, a future state of the world or their life or whatever, or them accomplishing their goals that they want. And that is a form of meditation. You know, there's some woo-woo stuff around like, hey, this is attracting like the law of attraction and everything like that. And I honestly am open-minded enough to say, you know what, sure, why not? I don't understand the universe. I'm not going to pretend that I know everything. If that works, fantastic. At the very least, it's a really good way to at least envision how your day, how your life is going to be and actually pull yourself towards that and have the positive emotions that kind of like move in that direction. But one thing that I've kind of always been like, disappointed with is what the hell happens when you actually have really negative emotions like you can be really aware and you can be really positive but it's all going to be bullshit if you're actually feeling sad or you're actually feeling really stressed the first part of my meditation every day is I basically let every possible negative emotion that I have felt in the last however much time I have all of that and I just let it come up And it's usually pretty bad, you know, because sometimes it could be something in the last day. Sometimes it could be something that happened seven years ago that still it just came up for me. But it turns out it's triggering because otherwise, why would it have come up? Yeah. And so what I do is I allow it to be there because this is kind of a safe space where I can kind of let these bad emotions be there or negative or whatever you want to call them. I let it come up. I just douse it with compassion. I douse myself and if it's hard to disidentify with the emotion, then I imagine a little kid in me that's having this negative emotion because that sort of helps separate me from the negative emotion. I say, okay, this kid is having the anger because it's a very normal reason why this kid would have the anger. It's interesting. Are these emotions like something that you
2: regret because you messed up, you made a mistake? Are these emotions where some other person in the world screwed you over? Are you compassionate to all of that? You're compassionate to yourself. When you made that mistake, you're compassionate to the person that's, threatening or attacking you. You're compassionate towards the rock in the road that made you trip. Or, uh, it. You're just compassionate to everything. It's co-
0: either compassion or forgiveness, which is kind of the same side. Yeah. It's like a flip side of the same coin. And it's also like to a certain degree, acceptance slash faith. You don't have to be religious to have the word faith. It can just be like, look, this is going to work out. Yeah. However it works out, it's going to work out. Yeah. And so you could say, okay, well, that's either acceptance or that's faith. And so if you can get to that perspective, if you can kind of Actively put compassion in the field. And it sounds weird, but literally surround your negative emotion. You can even visualize this surrounding whatever your negative emotion is. Maybe that's a ball. Maybe that's this little kid surrounded with the compassion or the positive emotion and let it be there. Sometimes it might not dissipate for a while, but other times it does. What's actually funny is that I can kind of identify where in my body I feel these negative emotions. Hmm. And so like for me, anger comes here in my solar plexus. Sadness comes in my gut area you know, some sort of betrayal sometimes comes around my heart area or some sort of desire comes there too. So I let all these things go. I don't like let them go in a passive sense, but I actually move through them. So like desire, like jealousy.
2: Yeah. So, so jealousy. You, that's, you would consider it like negative. You're like, okay, I wish I had a nice car. I, I wish I yeah, had or, that person's success. Or hey, you know,
0: Ample, I wish we had done better. I really need to do X amount of revenue next month or next quarter. Right. And to say, okay, well, it's cool to act and to do that and right. to work towards that, but to have the attachment to that or isn't
2: actually necessary. Right, so you have a compassion around it, where it's yeah, like I have you're compassion Try as hard as you can, but like I have faith, or I have acceptance that the outcome is going to be the outcome. I cannot control it.
0: Exactly, and we were talking about Dao De Jing. We were yeah. talking about right before this meeting. Like I've been listening to that. I just right for the. F- third time. For a relatively type A person, I think it's really nice to kind of have a little Zen attitude to it. So for me, I go through this process and I know it's hard for someone who's never even stepped into the, you know, meditation world for me to talk about all these emotions when most people are like, shit, I only have two emotions. I'm either pissed off or I'm not pissed off. There are people like that and who don't really have the emotional ability yet to identify with with them. That's fine you know but i found that it's very very helpful if negative emotions don't come up if i'm just like yeah i'm good today which sometimes happens then that's cool i can immediately go towards the open awareness or the positive stuff and hey you know what in the course of my positivity if all of a sudden i'm thinking in the back of my head i've got doubt like oh no i can't ever do that i can't be this such and such person then it's like ah i've got some resistance coming up i have some i identify it immediately i'm like great I have you, negative emotion. Now I'm going to douse you and smother you in compassion yet again, and you're going to die. (laughs) It's really fun, man. Honestly, the most fun part of my day. That's wild. Do you have a timer for the hour, or is this very organic? It's pretty organic. You're just like, you kind of
2: just know, okay, I wake up, I'm going to go into this meditation area and think through some of these things. Yeah,
0: sometimes. And when you're done, go on with your day.
2: You have an alarm
0: that goes off, in it's an hour it's generally an hour. Sometimes it's a little bit more if I'm dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. In the last five months or so, I've dealt with a lot of stuff from my kind of middle school and high school era, call it trauma, whatever you want to call it. But like I've dealt with a lot of stuff that I didn't realize were triggers for me. And so sometimes those come up and I'm like, all right, great. Like we're going to deal with them. But I think having a rough scaffold for how it's going to go and then kind of letting my intuition play off after that. But I think the one thing that has come out of this and which is really, really important is like a totally all pervasive sense of strength and empowerment that I can deal with kind of anything. Because ultimately, no matter what happens, there's a certain subset of emotions. You know, there's shame, there's guilt, there's fear, apathy, there's depression, there's sad, there's anger, there's desire, there's whatever else. There's a handful of them. If you know how to deal with those emotions, no matter what the hell comes up in your life, they're going to just go through those same trigger points. And if you can just deal with that, it doesn't really matter what happens in your life. And you're going to be fine no matter what. Yep. It's pretty awesome.
2: Yeah. Like essentially all possible negative things, you understand how to deal with it.
0: <laughs> I literally feel as if I'm like this video game character and every, every like, so possible I'm like, let type of
2: enemy, you figure out the, the, the strategy to beat them.
0: Exactly. And then by beating them, you level up yeah. and then you're like, great, I'm not going to let that type of enemy beat me again because now I used to be level 12, now I'm level 13. And that was a level 12 boss, but yeah. now I'm
2: better. Cool to hear that you essentially have almost done like self-therapy and given yourself a lot more confidence awareness.
0: Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I do have a therapist and I go to her every Tuesday. So I'm going to see her tonight. It's going to be fantastic. But I would say that, first of all, therapy is very stigmatized and especially for males, even now. Yeah. Definitely not a bad thing no matter what. I mean, you're talking about it pretty openly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would, but like, I would say that certain times you're going to get stuck. There's a couple of emotions right now that I've identified and I'm getting stuck, but it's like, all right, great. What's the user manual for the level 12 boss on this particular thing? I go to her and be like, yo, I'm struggling with this one. But the difference between where I'm coming from and where I think most people come from in terms of their therapy sessions is like, one, they're not doing the work in the middle of the week. Like I'm doing an hour's worth of work every morning so I have like seven hours under my belt of working with this stuff yep. before I talk to this therapist. It's like that's practice where I'm actually working with. But I think the second part of it is like you only talk to a therapist or someone when you're really in a bad state. And you're like, oh, man, this is like I'm really unhappy. Well, that's kind of like going to a doctor only for emergency rooms. Yeah, But it's like you can do that. But what's the preventative side of things? Wouldn't you just want to be really freaking happy with your life? There really is no limit to the amount of happiness that you can have. You just got to work through it. And although, you know, you're talking about, hey, people are not as happy as they could be. I think it's probably because they're completely okay with being sub happy. Oh, that's a good point. Well, I think part of it's like we have so much
2: distraction available at any given point. Yeah. Our smartphone, you get your Facebook, your Instagram. You can get you just distract yourself. And I think that might be part of it. You never process anything anymore. And because you're just
0: completely reactive to what's on your phone. You're both reactive. And also the problem is this is hard shit. Yeah. Although I say it's a fun part of my day, it's fun because I'm open to the challenge, but it's kind of like a workout where it's like you feel accomplished after you're done, but it's going to be painful in the time. And you're like, wow, I'm actually going to have to face my demons here. And like there might be some doors in my subconscious mind that I've literally never opened for years. What are those doors that I'm going to have to come in and do? And it's much easier to just push them off and say, I don't really need to deal with them so I can just put it aside. But I think like for me, I'm like, I really want to take ownership of all of my emotions and my entire life. So it's like, all right, great. Like now I've kind of gotten into the habit of facing these demons every day.
2: I'm hopeful that the discourse around internal work changes because I feel like it's only been within the last two, three years where this has been discussed in a more serious form. Yeah. Where I think. 5 10 years ago you'd have been like dude you're on some I eastern know, know. oriental freaking like you're trying to be some like buddhist monk or something yeah. and now i think the data some of the evidence is building up and more and more i would say serious people are looking at it as a serious inquiry right and i think this is not to say that it's good or bad i think 100 years ago if it's like hey you're going to a box to do muscle ups Yeah, it's like, Like, why why is that that? person doing that? And now exercising and working out is very, very sensible. Yeah. And maybe it's a time with mental, with that mental
0: I'm really hoping so, and I'm glad that we're having this conversation. Like, I'm really thankful, actually, that you're giving me the time to talk about this because this, as I mentioned, I'm really, really passionate about it. And I think that is one of the biggest things that like is missing in our society, especially because it's like, sure, you could be a, a Buddhist monk, like you're talking about, but like also... Why do I want to do this? Yes, I want to be happy, but I also want to be a freaking successful CEO. Yeah. I can't do that if I don't have my emotions under control. Yeah, There's a big difference between running on autopilot and truly facing each day as if I'm owning it. And so I just realized like, wow, there were certain times in Ample's past where I was reactive. I just, was reactive. Yeah. I was running on autopilot almost not really excited about stuff and I'm like, well, that's got to change. How do I get that to change? Yeah. But instead of blaming it being like, oh, crap, my life's screwed now because what I thought was my passion is no longer my passion. I'm like, all right, well, maybe I got some stuff underneath all this because if there is resistance, it's probably because there's some emotional thing behind it. So let's dive into that and like yeah. figure it out. I think this could be its own specific
2: podcast and we'll probably want to have a deeper conversation around some our internal explorations there. Oh, man, I'd but be I, so excited. Yeah, but I want to just almost Like, wrap up. I think we're going a little bit long here. Is I like to ask one, we got to learn about what's upcoming next for the world in AMPLE. But also, one fun question I like to ask is from more of a scientific lens if you had infinite resources and subjects and capacity, what kind of clinical research or study would you like to see run, whether it's AMPLE related or not AMPLE related? And then the second part would be, you know, what's new, what's big in 2019 for Ample?
0: Okay, does this have to be nutrition related? No. Okay, great. So I love nutrition, obviously, but I would actually do something related to productivity and ability for someone to really truly work with their emotions. And like, I think if we could tie the lens or connect the dots between actual work productivity and psychological well-being in a really definitive way, everyone would do it. And every company would see how useful and beneficial it is. It was hard for me and for everyone. is like therapy costs money. All these things cost money. And there are certain things that they're just prohibitive to the average person. I would want to reduce that barrier for everyone yeah, because it's just been so instrumental for me in my life that I think that that would be really impactful. So if I had unlimited resources, I would do that. And then, of course, your second question was new with Ample. We actually just finished up an equity crowdfunding campaign where we had over 1,200 people invest in Ample, the company, uh, for about $800,000, which is really exciting. Yeah, thanks. It was one of the most successful campaigns in equity crowdfunding history, which is really exciting. That's what we just finished up. I've just started my own podcast, which we're fiddling with name here a little bit. Yeah. So at some point, I would love to have you on as a guest. Of course. And then from a product level, Right now we have Ample Original, we have Ample V, which are plant-based, and we have Ample K. In less than two months or so, we're going to have a bulk version of all of our products come out. So it'll just be a bag with basically 6,000 calories, so that's 15 400-calorie meals. That's really exciting. And then shortly after that, we're going to be launching chocolate flavors of all of our products, which is really exciting. Bulk packaging and flavors have been the two highest demand from our consumers. So we're excited to get those out to people in the next few months. Cool. So
2: how do people follow along for Ample News? I guess you got Twitter, Facebook. What are the channels? What are the shout
0: outs? Yeah. So we got help at amplemeal.com if you want to email. Of course, just go to amplemeal.com to check out the website and check out the products. We're available on Amazon as well. Just Amazon search Ample on there. And then we're on Instagram at amplemeal. We're at... Twitter at ample meal, and then we're at ample meal for Facebook. So we got all those things. Huh. All right. Cool. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. It was appreciate a great
2: conversation. It. Yeah. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com pod. Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes out to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes you find most valuable. Visit go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey for that survey. It'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. Until next time, eat well, train smart, and live your life.